introduction to the law last week, and now we dive in with commandment number one. I'd like to read all of them again, though, just to refresh our memories. But before I do, as we find Exodus chapter 20, let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, we thank you that you are indeed the God who saves, as we've just been singing. And so we pray that as we feed on your word together, everything that I say and everything that we meditate on would indeed be to your praise and glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Exodus chapter 20, and I'll just read verses 1 to 17. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. I imagine that uh, we often say, don't we, uh, in church that uh, everyone's very welcome here and we are always conscious that people are coming to us who are maybe checking out the Christian faith for the first time. Uh, But I imagine that as we read the passage tonight that we've just read, that most of us must be on familiar ground. Uh, Even if you are quite new to church, then I imagine that if you've heard a a few things about the Bible, about Christianity, uh, the Ten Commandments must be up there with some of of the big, more famous ones, the the Christmas story and the Ten Commandments and some other quite well-known bits of Christianity, bits of the Bible. And maybe if you're of a certain vintage, I don't know if they still do this, but if you're like me, a young adult, uh, then back when I was at school doing RE lessons, we, we'd do this activity every, every so often where we'd write out the Ten Commandments and we'd have to do it in a really creative and artistic way. So some would go and get some grey card and they would write it out in calligraphy as if it was in stone or I personally favoured getting a bit, of a, a bit of paper and putting the bullet point list and then, then doing tea staining to make it look like an old, old bit of parchment. And you may have done that and, and as you, you did that, you'll have written out you shall have no other gods, you shall not worship idols, you shall not, you shall not, you shall not, etc., etc. If we're familiar with the Ten Commandments on that level and on that level alone, then it might be a surprise that when we read this passage, the first word that God speaks isn't you, it's I. I am the Lord your God. 
Last week, we thought about how the Ten Commandments are literally ten words in the Hebrew, and we could also think of them as ten invitations, ten charges, even ten promises of what the Lord himself will do for his people. And we could also think of them as ten selfies. Even as God spotlights the way that his people ought to live in relationship with him, he turns the camera on himself, saying, this is what I am like. And so as well in this series as learning about how we live, what we need to do, well, first and foremost, we are going to go right to the heart of God himself and find out what he is like. And that's because the thing, the thing that was always going to keep Israel back then and keep us as God's people today walking closely with him is a deeper knowledge of him his character, his holiness, and a deeper appreciation of what he's done, his mighty saving deeds. And maybe that's most clear of all this evening as we dive into looking at the first commandment together. The aim in looking at Exodus chapter 20, and particularly that commandment in verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me, is not that we leave feeling guilty, for how our hearts are divided, how we are prone to chase after other things, though it's good to be challenged about that and to reflect on that. No, the aim as we embark this evening is to leave thinking, if this is what God, our God, is like, well then how could I ever want to give my heart to another? As I've put it on the outline, which you'll find on the reverse of the notice sheet, the Lord is the one true God who alone is to be worshipped. That's what we want to see this evening, and those will be our two big points to consider. First part of that then, the Lord is the one true God. Read verses 1 and 2 of Exodus 20 with me again. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So as we've said before, a commandment is issued, but we get this statement of self-revelation from God. Notice how he identifies himself here. First of all, he is the Lord. The capitals in our Bibles here, they're not an accident. Lord here in capital letters, that signifies that the English rendering being used is of the Hebrew word for Yahweh, the name of God used all throughout the Old Testament. The special name of God that he uses to reveal himself to his people. It's a big word even in the book of Exodus itself. Back in Exodus chapter 3, this is the name by which God makes himself known to Moses. And so even by chapter 20 here, this, this relatively early part of Israel's history, already Yahweh, the Lord, is a name which is shorthand for the special relationship that God has with his people. The God who has made special promises to Israel who has bound himself to keep them, is the God who will be their God, who will be with them, who will guide them, who will bless them. He is the Lord. And then naturally, he's not just the Lord, he is the Lord, their God, the Lord, your God. The word that the Bible uses for those special promises I've just mentioned is covenant. And a covenant is a mutual thing between two parties. So just as God has committed himself to them, 
They, his people, are bound to him. They owe him their love, their obedience, and their worship. I was talking with some, some other young adult friends recently about how when you're in your early 20s, it's kind of like the, the decade in front of you is the decade of potential and possibility. And you might find yourself thinking, maybe one day I'll have a husband or a wife. And then one day, if you do get married, the wording changes. It's no longer a husband or a wife. It's my husband. When I go to a party with Judy, I introduce her as my wife. And similarly, I'm her husband. Not, this is Judy, our wife. That would be weird. This is Judy, my wife. I'm bound to one specific person. And it's similar here. God doesn't say, I am the Lord, a God, but I am the Lord, your God. Not just a small G, generic God, one of any number of deities that they could follow. No, very specifically, Yahweh is the God who has made a covenant with his people, the God who knows them intimately, and to whom they are uniquely, intimately, and exclusively bound. He is the Lord, their God. And so we're already starting to get into some of the implications of this commandment. If I just borrow that marriage metaphor again for a second, and there are things that any husband or wife will want to do around the house to please the other person. And so if somebody's wife, for example, likes the dishes done or or the bins emptied, it's a poor excuse to say, well, there are plenty of other wives out there who don't mind those things at all, and so I don't feel bound to do them. No, that would be weird again, because you're not trying to please a number of wives or a number of husbands. In marriage, you're seeking to make life easier for and please your wife, your husband. I want to do things which please my wife. And in a similar way, we of course want to do things which invite the pleasure of and our appropriate worship to our God. The God who has covenanted himself with us. After all, When God says that this is who he is, there's no puff, there's no exaggeration, there's no small print. If this is a selfie of God, there's no filter. He is being entirely honest in his self-revelation here. A few years ago, the comedian Tim Vine, he went through a series where he he did a stand-up show at the Edinburgh Fringe every year for about 10 years, and he wanted to take a break. But to announce this news, in Edinburgh, during the festival, what he did was he took out a huge billboard on the mound, and on it was a big picture of his face, and in big lettering, Tim Vine, and then in very small lettering, will not be performing at this year's Edinburgh Festival. It's not like that with God. There's no attempt to mislead. There's no attempt to pull a fast one. When he says, I am the Lord your God, he's being entirely honest and entirely trustworthy. And that's shown all the more clearly in the final thing God says about himself here. Because even more specifically, he is your God who has rescued you rescued his people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Precisely because he is the covenant God, he is the God who alone can and alone has rescued them from slavery. We sang earlier, you alone can rescue. It's wonderfully true. And God alone has rescued for the people here by delivering them out of Egypt. If I were to ask you, 
what's the most significant event in our nation's history, I think we'd have a bit of a discussion, a bit of healthy debate on our hands, especially if there's some question about which nation I'm actually talking about. So you may say something like the pandemic recently. You may say World War II. You may even say Bannock-Burton if you're of a particular persuasion. But there would be absolutely no confusion and no debate if you were to ask that question to an Old Testament Israelite. What's the most significant event in your history? The Exodus. Easy. God's work to deliver people out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery under Pharaoh, that's an event which looms large over the entire rest of the Old Testament. It's his most seismic, most famous saving act. If we read from Exodus 20 onwards up to the end of the Old Testament, we see that through all Israel's highs and lows, through their golden years and times of deep national crisis, this refrain from God, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. I am the God who redeemed you from slavery. This harking back to the Exodus, it's used both as an immensely comforting reminder of the depths of God's love, the steadfastness of his commitment to his people. And it's also used as a rebuke in times when they forget his love, times when his people kid themselves that other gods are just as good as he is. And remember too that in Exodus 20, we're talking about a very, very recent memory for the people hearing these commandments as they're being delivered to them for the first time. If we were gathered on Mount Sinai with Israel and we heard those words, I am the God who brought you out of Egypt, we'd be thinking of very recent events. Maybe we'd instantly remember everything we'd just been brought through. Maybe we'd, we'd think of the promise that God made to Moses, which kicked this whole thing off back in Exodus 3, that he would deliver us and bring us to the very mountain on which we are now standing. And we'd think, our God is so faithful. Maybe as we heard the voice thundering from the mountain, saw the cloud and the fire, heard the trumpet blast, maybe we would have remembered that this is the God who confounded the magicians of Pharaoh, who showed the gods of Egypt to be utterly false and inept. And we'd think, our God is so powerful. Maybe even the very mention of Egypt would have brought back the whole journey to us in vivid detail the stench of lamb's blood as we smeared it over our doorposts, the cries of families in mourning over their firstborn sons, the thrill of excitement tinged with with fear and disbelief as we crossed the boundary of Egypt and then only then realized that Pharaoh's soldiers were pursuing us, the hopelessness of being caught between the sea on one hand and Pharaoh's army behind us, And then the sheer wonder of seeing the waters part and of crossing over them with dry feet. Maybe we'd we'd remember then the, the wonder, the elation of being delivered, slowly being replaced by confusion and fear. Well, what now? Where will we go? What will we eat? How will we get by? And then remember the comforting realization that the Lord, Yahweh, our God, was going to give us everything we needed. The miraculous provision of food in the form of manna and quail. (coughs) Excuse me. Water from the rock 
and safe delivery one day to the land that he had promised. We would have to remember all of these things and think, Yahweh, the Lord our God, is so good, so gracious. He has given us everything, even though we don't deserve it. All of which is to just underline again something which Paul told us last week, that the Ten Commandments are not given for Israel to earn their standing before God. These words are given after God has already made his people his own by delivering them from Pharaoh. The same grace by which he reveals more of himself now is the same grace by which he has already saved and delivered, delivered his people so that they might live in right relationship with him. He alone has done this, and so he alone is worthy of their worship. And that same dynamic, that's at work in us as believers today. If we were to ask an Israelite at Mount Sinai, how do you know that God loves you and is definitely for you? They'd say the Exodus, as we've just been thinking. But for us today, the answer to that question is, of course, the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ is where we see that God alone can deliver us, not from an earthly king, but from the power of sin and death, and that he alone has delivered us from these things. So if you are here tonight as someone who's just checking things out, you're not yet uh, someone who would call themselves a Christian, please do not see this sermon, or indeed this series as a whole, as ten steps to be a good enough person for God. What this passage is first asking you to do is to consider the question, do you know this God? Is a God who saves in such an abundant way, who provides in such an abundant way, a God you would want to know? Maybe that's reason enough to grab John afterwards and ask him more about Hope Explorer. Go and find out more about this God, a God who can be your God if you approach him in his Son. And for those of us who are believers, though, before we consider what demands are placed on us by these words, these commandments, we need to dwell a while on this fact and remember that these are not burdens laid down by an impossible to please God making us jump through hoops to win his favor. These really are gracious ways that the God who loves us, the God who has delivered us, has made us his own, There are gracious ways that he has revealed for us to live in the right relationship with him that he has secured. That's the starting point for all our obedience to him. After all, if the Lord alone is the true God who has saved us, it makes perfect sense. It only follows naturally that he alone is worthy of our undivided, wholehearted worship. And that leads to our second point, the Lord alone is to be worshipped. Now maybe the elephant in the room of Exodus 23, you shall have no other gods before me, is those words other and before. Is God suggesting that he is actually just one among many gods? Is he suggesting here that Israel can worship anyone they like as long as they worship him first? There's a couple of things 
for us to get our bearings on this. First of all, throughout Scripture, God makes it clear that he is the only God, the true God, the living God, as he said in that passage from Deuteronomy we had read for us. And if we even glance down to verse 4, we see that he expressly forbids the worship of other gods through idols and images, and we'll say more about that next week. And then also to clarify that before me here means in my presence. Remember where Israel are and where they're going. They're going into a land in which there are many, many other gods being worshipped. And here the Lord, Yahweh, their God, is saying to them, when you get to the promised land, the land I am bringing you to in my steadfast love, when you get there, don't go chasing after other false gods and rub that in my face as you worship them before me in my presence. The first and most obvious implication of this commandment is that no other God is to be worshipped instead of Yahweh. That's clear enough. What may have been harder for Israel, what I imagine is certainly more challenging for us, is that verse 3, it's not just saying no other gods instead of, it's also saying no other gods as well as Yahweh. I don't know if anybody has read or seen The Life of Pi. I think it came out about 12, 13 years ago now. The central premise of that book, the main character, Pi, is someone who wants to take all the best bits from different religions and have all of them. And there's a scene where three local religious leaders from a a local church, a local Buddhist group, uh, and from a a local, um, I can't actually remember what the third religion represented is, but there are three of them, three religious leaders who come and they try and plead with him to accept just one of those things, but then they end up bickering and arguing with each other and insulting one another, and Pi gets really exasperated and just says, can't I just love God in the way that I want to love him? And that's a very popular concept in our world today, that religion is something of a pick and mix. You can take it or leave it, you can pick and choose, as long as you're good, as long as you're kind, as long as you're not hurting anybody else, it doesn't matter. If you want to worship, worship whoever you want, in whatever way you see fit. If we know our Bible history, though, we'll know that that is not just a modern issue. There are, of course, times in the Old Testament where Israel abandons God, Yahweh, their God. But there are also instances where they claim to be worshipping Yahweh, but in fact they're also worshipping the gods of Canaan, Baal, Ashtoreth, countless others their hearts divided between their God and the gods of other peoples. That's where the no other gods before me comes in. Yahweh graciously telling his people that he's not just to be worshipped a bit. He's not just to be worshipped as they see fit, if they can find the time on their terms, on their schedule. He is to be worshipped rightly, He is to be worshipped exclusively. For them, then, that of course involved lots of practical instructions about sacrifices and the temple and the tabernacle, things that when we were away on NYC, those of us who went away last week were thinking about in the book of Leviticus. But even, even then, it was never a merely practical thing for them. As the passage from Deuteronomy puts it, 
They were to love the Lord their God with all their heart and soul and might. They were to love the Lord their God with, in other words, every single part of themselves all at once. That is how total their devotion to him needs to be. And again, the rest of the Old Testament is one long, sad history of Israel failing to do just that. Time and time again, chasing after other gods, even as they may have been going through the practical motions of worshipping Yahweh, they were doing so with hearts and loyalties divided. And I guess as we think about it in those terms, we see as well how far short of this commandment we fall too. I imagine as Christians today, we, we probably find it relatively easy to not have other gods instead of the God we worship, the God of the Bible, Yahweh, who we've just been thinking about, the one whom we know intimately through his son, the Lord Jesus, the one whom we worship every day with the help of the Holy Spirit. But when we think about it in terms of heart and soul and might, we see that the same root problem that beset Israel all those years ago is alive and well in us today. For us, it can present itself in the form of countless other quote-unquote gods with which we divide our devotion to the Lord Jesus. And I imagine, again, there'll probably be at least as many of those small g gods as there are people in this room, certainly more. We won't list them all, but we will call out that attitude. And we will ask ourselves the question, why? Why, when we meet together and we see just how mighty, how good, how powerful our God is, when we meet and we we truly want to worship him with all that we are, Why do we find ourselves between Sundays, between Wednesdays or Thursdays, failing to do just that? Sometimes it's just the the really mundane, everyday concerns that get in the way. We get home from church this evening and the heating hasn't come on as it should have, or we live in a student flat where the heating will never go on, and so our reflections on church are replaced by ruminating on the cold in misery. Maybe more seriously, it's the, the real anxieties, the real burdens of Monday morning, another week in a really difficult job that we find taxing and draining, Another semester of uni, at the end of which we need to find out and work out what we're going to do with the rest of our lives, and we have no idea. Another week of caring for, bearing with, looking after family members with complex needs and emotions. Or maybe it's even the real pains of life. Grief, chronic illness, the long, dark night of the soul. There are countless things which can dampen our desire to be devoted to the Lord in worship. Lots of ways in which our worship of God and God alone can become overtly or subtly divided. All of which, to which, all of which I want to, to offer one challenge and also a word of comfort. 
The challenge is this. As we recognize that tendency in ourselves, whatever the presenting issue might be for us, we need to reflect on two questions. First of all, am I guilty of not worshiping God wholeheartedly because I've not fully grasped or don't sufficiently allow myself to remember all that God has done for me? Those things that we were reflecting on earlier. Am I not sufficiently aware of or sufficiently remembering true redemption, the redemption pictured so vividly in the Exodus, but fully and wonderfully accomplished by God's Son, the Lord Jesus? Do I fail to reflect sufficiently on those things? Do I not yet grasp just how truly wonderful they are? Second question, am I guilty of not worshipping God wholeheartedly? Because I don't dwell enough on the many gifts he's blessed me with in my life as a believer today. My many material comforts. My relationships with friends and family. Do I sometimes buy into the worldly notion of being a self-made man who has earned all these things by hard work, by intellect, charisma, and charm? Do I even sometimes turn the ways in which I serve God's people into examples of how good and gifted I am rather than thanking God for how richly he has blessed me by enabling me to serve. These are all subtle ways in which we can find our hearts, our loyalties divided, our desire to worship dampened when we forget the very real fact of God's blessing in our lives, the truest, deepest blessing of redemption, the everyday blessings that we see all around us, yet can be so slow to give thanks for as we acknowledge them. The challenge for us is reflecting on whether any of these things are what's holding us back from worshipping God more and more fully. If that's the challenge, though, the comfort is that wonderfully, We worship rightly if we're in Christ, not as Israel did here in a specific place, in a very specific and and practical way, but we worship in spirit and in truth if we know Jesus. And so we don't need to tie ourselves in knots or to strain really, really hard to really love God loads this week. It's important to remember who God is and what he has done. He alone can and he alone has delivered us by sending his son. Another thing we began to reflect on last week is that these commandments point forward to Jesus. And so while my heart is is divided, while my heart is depressingly deceitful and deceptive, well, the Lord Jesus, he was He had a heart that was fully bound up in love for and devotion to his Father in heaven. It's by looking to Jesus that we can have great confidence that though we feel every day, he did not, does not, will not, that our standing before God is entirely based on what Jesus has done rather than on our performance on any given day. It's also by gazing at Jesus that we have a true and vivid reminder of how, though we fall so far short of the demands of this word, 
God doesn't waver on his commitment. God doesn't waver or regret his decision. He doesn't go back on the the steadfast love he's shown us by making us his own, by sending us his son. And so the challenges that we reflected on, they should rightly drive us to reflection, to repentance where that's necessary, asking God to help us worship him more fully, more devotedly, more exclusively. And I hope as well that the comfort reminds us that he graciously hears our prayers and is bringing his good work in us to completion right through to the day when Jesus returns and we will stand before him and worship him completely, as one hymn puts it, lost in wonder, love, and praise. Which leads us once again to remember our God is so good, our God is so powerful, our God is so faithful. How could I ever want to worship another? With that in mind, let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, we thank that you are so good, so faithful, so kind, that you're a God of steadfast love, that even as we consider uh, your work of bringing your people out of slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt, we also give you thanks for how that really vividly points forward to the Lord Jesus in whom you've truly and once and for all redeemed us if our trust is in him. And so we pray that as we remember who you are, the God who has covenanted himself with us, the God of steadfast love towards us, that you would help us to delight in offering you our worship every day, relying fully on who you are and what you've done and desiring to bring you more and more praise and glory. And it's to your praise and glory that we pray. Amen.